0: Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 25 today, Exodus 25, and we'll begin in verse 10. A few months ago, I read an article on AL.com about Bryant-Denny Stadium undergoing extensive and elaborate renovations, and the author of the article called it a monument to an entire state's uncompromising, unapologetic love for college football. Now we know that we live in a state that loves college football. Many of us love college football. And this author went on to write, he said, we, we do it better than anyone, for good or ill. Bryant-Denny Stadium is a house of worship, a source of dreams and a place of business. It's where Tennessee goes to die every other year (laughs) and where Crimson Tide glory lives forever. Now, church, for us non-Tide fans, it may not seem so, but I can assure you that Crimson Tide glory will not live on forever. Nor will the Tigers or the Razorbacks, the Volunteers, the Bulldogs or the Buccaneers. Only the glory of the infinite, matchless and majestic God will last forever and ever. And where we enter the story this morning, His glory, God's glory is shining through a consuming fire atop Mount Sinai. In fact, the people are watching. They're watching from a distance. They're gazing from a distance. And then God calls Moses, the mediator, to come up on top of the mountain to receive the stone tablets of the covenant law. That is the Ten Commandments. And while he's there, while Moses is there, God meets with him. God meets with Israel's representative, God meets with his servant and he begins to instruct Moses on what to tell the Israelites about building a place, a house of worship, a tabernacle where God's glory can dwell in the center of the camp among his people. The consuming fire of God is going to come down and it's time for the people of God to prepare for his arrival. And so God tells Moses, and this is the text we saw last week, he tells his people, he says, bring free will offerings. Have everyone whose heart prompts them to give to me, have them bring gold and silver and other costly materials for God's sanctuary among them. And then God begins telling Moses what to put in the sanctuary. And so that's where we pick up the story today. We're going to see What God tells his people to put in the sanctuary, how he tells them to build it, what it means. And so let's look at his word. Let's look at at Exodus chapter 25, uh, Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 10. And as you find your place there in the Bible, let me invite you to join me standing, uh, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's holy word. Let's hear from the Lord today. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. God says to Moses, he says, have them make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the, on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Verse 17, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover, place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Let's bow together. In prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe in you. Lord, we trust you. And so we want to hear from you. So Lord, guide us, instruct us by the presence and power of your spirit in accordance with your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, God begins With this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, this sanctuary, this house of worship, he begins giving instructions specific to the ark. This is a different word for ark than the word uh, used with Noah's ark. This is a box. This is a chest. He gives instructions about this chest because this is the most sacred and important piece of furniture in the sanctuary. It's the most sacred object in the tabernacle. In fact, it would be the only piece of furniture in the the holy of holies or the most holy place. And God's presence, the very presence of the holy God himself, would dwell particularly powerfully in this place above the ark. See, God was starting with instructions from the inside out. He was beginning with instructions for the most holy place and then he was backing away from His presence. God says it's to be two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Now most of us don't talk in cubits. We don't measure in cubits today, but a cubit is about 18 inches, the uh, length from a man's elbow to the tip of his hand. And so to put that in perspective, I'm about four cubits tall. The Ark of the Covenant itself was a little bit smaller than our communion table. Our communion table here is about a foot longer than the ark of the covenant it's about the same depth it's about two feet deep it was about two feet high so a little bit shorter off the ground than this uh, table here with us you can see a, an image of the ark on the screen you can see that this was an elaborate object made of wood wood that is overlaid with gold pure gold from the inside to the out costly material closely associated Uh, with the presence and the value of God. You can see the cherubim there on top, overshadowing the atonement cover, bowing in the presence of God. Now, when we read a text like this, when we unpack a portion of God's Word like this, when we hear God's Word with such detail, we ought to notice that God's being rather particular. He's not leaving much here to chance. He's being very descriptive. He's being descriptive on purpose, Because every detail communicates something about his glory and the way in which his people are to worship him. Now, if you showed up at the Jones house uh, unannounced and we happen to invite you uh, in the house, you're going to notice some things about our family uh, simply by showing up at our house. You're going to notice the dining room table off to the right. And you're probably, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, you're going to see some things piled up on that table. Uh, you 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 might see some some towels or some I'm in trouble. You might see some towels. I'm gonna fix that in a minute. Uh, some towels and some laundry. You might see some papers. You might see a backpack. You might see some of these objects that indicate to you that we don't eat on that dining room table very often. It's not sore. Not, not really a, a daily place of, of sitting down around the table. We reserve the kitchen table for that. You may notice uh, some little toys scattered in the living room. You may see a couple little dinosaurs or cars indicating to you that we have young boys that love to play with such things. But one other thing that you, you will see, and I want to point out that you're going to see it, you're going to see a pretty vase of flowers in the kitchen uh, expressing how much I love my wife. Isn't that right, babe? That's true. You see, just as the layout and the decor of your house communicate your priorities, so the design and detail of the art communicate God's standards for worship. We don't worship in... A tent of meeting today. We don't worship in a tabernacle today. We don't worship in a portable sanctuary anymore, but this text still teaches us about worship. It teaches us about biblical worship. Biblical worship recognizes God's righteous standard and celebrates his gracious provision. It recognizes God's righteous standard and celebrates His gracious provision, which means when we worship God, church, when we worship God, believers, God expects us to recognize His standard and to celebrate His provision. You see, the tabernacle was to be a place of of meeting with God, a place where Yahweh Himself, the, the great I Am, would reside among His rescued people in the center of the camp, meaning that this was a place of worship. And any time the people of God encounter the presence of God, they are to worship God, for He is worthy of our worship. And so if the tabernacle is a place of worship, and if the Ark of the Covenant was providing the the location where the one being worshipped would reside in a particular way, then the instructions concerning its design, the instructions concerning the Ark's design tell us something about what it means to approach the presence of God for worship. Friends, we must consider God's holy presence and His righteous standard when we draw near to worship Him. We attempt to come before the presence of God when we want to be near God, when we draw near to worship Him, we must consider who He is. We must consider His holy presence and His righteous standard. You see, Moses was invited to draw near to God on behalf of the people for worship. He was the mediator, the representative of the people. as the mediator, God would meet with God and soon it would be the high priest who would enter the presence of God on behalf of the people on the day of atonement. Our text teaches us, and not simply just this passage, but the whole surrounding section concerning the building of the tabernacle teaches us that it is no small thing to enter the presence of God. It's not something to be taken for granted. It is not something to be taken lightly. Sometimes we approach God as if He's our buddy, forgetting That He is a consuming fire and altogether above us and worthy of exclusive worship from us. Friends, through God's blueprint of the tabernacle here, we learn a number of things about God. We learn a number of characteristics of God. And one is that God is orderly. He is orderly. In fact, this, this portion of Exodus is tedious. It's repetitive. You probably even felt some of that as we walk through this passage today, but it becomes even more so, in fact, uh, detailing the building plan in chapters 25 to 30 and then restating those details in the completion of the building plan in chapters 35 to 39, highlighting for us that God is a God of order. He's a God of order with specific instructions for his house of worship and some God says to Moses, verse 9, Moses, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Moses, do it to these specifications. Don't leave anything up to chance. And We don't see all of that here. Presumably, God shows Moses what this is to look like. He gives him a vision or shows him a pattern of what this is to be. God is orderly, and we also see here that God is worthy he is worthy. The article I opened with earlier goes on to describe the the southern decadence on display in the new founders' suites of Bryant-Denny Stadium uh, covered with marble and hardwoods and pricey crystal chandeliers for the select few with more than $5 million to spend alongside their annual contribution uh, commitments. Now, I've not seen those Founder sweets, can you imagine what they must look and feel like? I've seen some pictures online of what they are, but I dare say that such luxury in our own day doesn't compare to the intricacy of the tabernacle in Moses' day. Notice all of the gold here. Concerning the ark, God says, overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding. Around it. You see, such gold signifies the purity and the value of God. He is worthy. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of submission. He is worthy of exaltation and praise, and He is holy. God is holy. And to say that God is holy is to say that He's distinct. That He is incomparable. That there is no one like Him. Anywhere at any time in existence. He's altogether separate. And for this reason, God tells Moses, he says in verse 13, make some poles, make poles of acacia wood, make some wooden poles and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. The people are to remain, uh, the poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. God is quite particular here about these poles be made in this way they're to be put in these rings they're to stay there they're never to be removed he says so that no one touches the ark so that no one wrongfully touches the ark for anyone who did would die like tongs on the stake protect your hand from the heat of the grill so these poles were to protect sinful people from the holiness of god and notice the position of these cherubim and See these on the image. Notice these golden replicas of angels that are guarding this holy place facing downward as if bowing in the presence of God who would come down and to reside above them as he met with, with Moses. It's because of this, this idea, this location where God would come down and reside above the cherubim over the atonement cover that we read multiple times throughout the Old Testament that this was God's throne, that He is enthroned above the cherubim. God is holy. Friends, God is worthy. God is orderly. And we see here that God sets the standard of righteousness. God sets the standard of righteousness. Stone tablets containing the law of God were to be housed here in the ark reminding worshipers that God has a standard and conformity to that standard is His will, His desire for us. Verse 16, Then Moses put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. And so church, we see in God's design of the ark, we we see His character, we see His order, we see His worth, we see His holiness, we see His standard of righteousness. And so in our worship, when we come together, when we seek to exalt Him and enter into His presence, we must be a people who acknowledge His character, acknowledge God's character, acknowledge who He is. When we gather for worship, when we come together in this place, we too want to recognize God's righteous standard, and so we open His Word. Right, And so we... Elevate the the reading and the preaching of God's Word to a central place. A cross-shaped wooden pulpit elevated to a central place in our gatherings so to ensure that we don't misrepresent God. So that we don't ignore God. For if we do, if we do, no doubt, we will quickly begin to worship something or someone other than God. And likewise, the positioning of the choir reminds us that God is worthy of praise. The presence of the table, the presence of the communion table teaches us that we can only draw near for worship through an atoning sacrifice. We cannot barge into the presence of God, that we are not right with God through anything that we have accomplished or done on our own. Our sin stands in the way we must consider God's holy presence and His righteous standard when we draw near to worship Him. But praise God, church, through God's gracious provision of atonement, we may draw near. To worship Him. We consider His standard, but we also recognize and celebrate that He has provided, He has provided atonement for us that we may, we can draw near to worship Him. For Israel and for us, God would supply the sacrifice. But we dare not approach Him apart from the sacrifice, for He is a consuming fire. He is a pure and eternal and righteous and holy God. And on top of the chest, God said, make an atonement cover, verse 17. A solid lid near the Lord's presence made of pure gold. That lid sealed in the law. The commandments of God housed within the ark. The lid sealed them in the law that condemns us. The law that exposes our, our sin, but that lid provides the place for the sprinkling of blood on the Day of Atonement where the blood of an animal sacrifice in place of human sinners temporarily appeased God's wrath. Also known as propitiation. God the just is satisfied. We sang of that this, this morning. It provided forgiveness of sins and it removed the barrier Between a holy God and sinful people, also known as expiation, propitiation and expiation. Church, don't miss this. Even though God was establishing strict parameters for worship, he was doing so. God did so because he desired to be with his rescued people. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to be in relationship with them, to be in relationship with sinners, sinners like you and sinners like me. Friends, see his desire to meet with us. See, God's desire to meet with us, to be in relationship with us, as we take in this story, don't miss God's desire to be with His people. So rather than reading this portion of God's Word, rather than hearing these instructions as an expression of God's desire to be distinct, to be distant from us, see them as His expressing His resolve to be with us. Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them. I will be with them. It said, I will be their God and they will be my people. Moses, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you. Moses, I I want to, to meet with you and give you the commands for the Israelites. Numbers chapter 7 verse 89, when Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the covenant law. In this way, the Lord spoke to him. Can you imagine meeting with God in the presence of God, hearing the voice of God, the Holy God initiates a relationship This is God's idea. He initiates a relationship with broken sinners like us in need of His grace. This was the purpose of the tabernacle, what it was all about. It was about gaining access to God, being in relationship with the very one who sits enthroned above the cherubim. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and yet He provides mercy that covers us. Friends, see His provision of mercy It covers us. He is a God of mercy. Certainly a God who is worthy, a God who is holy, a God who is righteous and just. But He is a God of mercy. The golden cover on the Ark of the Covenant is also called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Not a place to sit down, but a location. A location where mercy was found. That mercy being the forgiveness of sins. The commandments housed here. And the Ark of the Covenant condemned sinners who broke God's law. But every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And when God came down to meet with His people, the first thing that He saw wasn't the commandments they had broken, but the blood of the substitute that covered our sins. Praise God for His forgiveness. A sacrifice that brought separated parties back together together. Again And friends, this was not only God's doing for Israel, this is his doing for us. We no longer sprinkle blood. Praise God for that. We no longer sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, but we remember a cross on which was placed. The true and lasting, the final and ultimate atoning sacrifice. We still celebrate God's gracious provision of atonement. For through his provision, we may draw near to worship him. John says it this way, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, see God's provision for you. His provision for you, inviting you into his presence, into the very presence of the Most High God. See his perfect son who shed his own blood for you. See His Son, the Son of God, sent to the altar of the cross to cover your sin, to cover my sin. See His perfect Son who shed His own blood for you so that God Almighty, the High King and the Holy One, can welcome you into His glorious presence for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever. For God presented Christ, Paul says, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The ultimate sacrifice. Innocent bloodshed on our behalf. The mercy of God expressed, provided so that we could be restored into right relationship with him forever and ever. God has provided the sacrifice of atonement. Have you received it by faith? Today's a holiday. Holidays help us remember. They remind us of significant things. Holidays help us remember milestones and help us remember reasons for celebrations. Today is Valentine's Day, a day where we're reminded of God's gift of relationships and relationships certainly in, in marriage. As we think about marriage, and there are many keys to marriage, marriage is tough. There are many ups and downs in marriage, but one of the greatest keys to marriage is forgiveness. Being willing and ready to extend grace, mercy, kindness, forgiveness toward someone in relationship with us. And the same is true when it comes to our relationship with God Almighty. The key to the relationship is forgiveness. Not our forgiveness of God, for He has never nor will He ever do anything wrong, but His forgiveness of us through the blood of His Son shed for us. Praise God for forgiveness. Praise God for this atoning sacrifice in your place and in mine. Have you received it in faith? Scriptures say you can receive it in faith today. You can turn to Jesus for forgiveness and life, eternal life, here and now, today. You can cry out to Him. You can acknowledge your sin and recognize His provision and turn to Jesus in faith and become a child of the Almighty God, welcomed into His presence, no longer separated, but enjoying even here and now a foretaste of his presence forevermore. Friend, if you turn to Jesus in faith, Father, help us to turn to you in faith today. Help us to be a people of faith with our eyes fixed on your Son, our Savior. Father, we thank you for your provision. Father, today we have gathered indeed to recognize, to recognize your righteous standard and to celebrate your gracious provision for us in jesus father as we sing as we respond father as we continue our worship may we exalt you for you alone are worthy may we celebrate jesus and whose name we have life father lead us now lead us now to lift high the cross to reflect on your love the greatest love the deepest love ever known the love of god for his people Father, help us to respond to that truth, each and every one of us, individually and certainly together, collectively, as a body of believers. Lead us in that way for your glory. and It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.